0: Before we get into this week's story, a bit of housekeeping. Already Gone is a Michigan and Great Lakes focused podcast with episodes released on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can find Already Gone on Twitter at Already Gone Pod, on Facebook where we have both a page and a discussion group. You can also find us online at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I'd like to give special thanks to this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. And now, on with the show. The murder of Jane Bashara is a much requested case. And to be honest, it's one that I've avoided until now. We're going to talk about murder, which is always distressing, but the case also delves into sexual dysfunction, infidelity, abuse, and explores the BDSM community. If you aren't familiar with the term, BDSM refers to sexual practices involving bondage, discipline, sadism, and masochism. As I compiled the episode, my intent was to be respectful of the BDSM community. If I fell short in my efforts, please forgive me. The story takes place in the upscale Detroit suburb of Gross Point Park, but to understand how we ended up where we did with a woman beaten to death, her body stashed inside of her Mercedes and dumped in a dark Detroit alley? We have to go back, all the way back to the 1950s, when the victim, Jane Bashara, born Jane Engelbrecht, was a little girl in Mount Clemens. Jane was born on June 22, 1955, to parents Lorraine and John, Jane was one of four children, and she, along with her siblings, John, Janet, and Julie, were raised in a modest home in the Macomb County community of Mount Clemens. While she attended Mount Clemens High School, Jane worked at the Miller Brothers Creamery serving ice cream. In addition to working and her school studies, she participated in extracurricular activities including volleyball and tennis, and Jane joined the French Club. I want to pause here because just a few episodes back in episode 128, which we released on December 1st, 2019, we talked about the murder of Kathy Krausnick. Kathy also attended Mount Clemens High School and was a member of the French Club. And while Kathy graduated from Mount Clemens High in 1970 and Jane graduated in 1973, it struck me that these young women with so much in common would grow up, marry, and have children, only to see their lives cut short, murdered by the men that they married. Although, listeners, to be fair, there has yet to be a trial in the murder of Kathy Krausnack, and as you know, Kathy's husband James Krausnack was recently arrested, and he is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. The husband of Jane Engelbrecht? Well, we will get to him in a minute. After graduating from Mount Clemens High School in 1973, Jane went to Central Michigan University. While there, she studied business administration, and her friends and family were not surprised by Jane's success. They knew her as focused, goal-oriented, and driven, but they also knew her as happy, smiling, and friendly. While a student at Central, Jane joined the Honor Society and landed an internship with Detroit Edison. When Jane finished her degree in 1977, Detroit Edison offered her a full-time job, which she accepted. After a couple of years of working for Detroit Edison, Jane decided that her studies were not complete, and she enrolled at the University of Detroit Mercy, earning a master's in business administration in 1983. And I'm curious if she attended the University of Detroit or Mercy College of Detroit, the two Catholic colleges combined in 1990, but everything I've come across lists the new name of the school, not what it was called when she attended. It was about the time that Jane completed her MBA that she met the man who would become her husband and the father of her two children, Robert Bob Bashara. Bob Bashara was born December 12, 1957. He was the son of Lebanese immigrants George and Nancy Bashara. Bob had a sister, Laura, and the family settled in Gross Point. Bob's father, George, was an attorney, and he would be appointed to the Michigan Court of Appeals in 1972. When George Bashara received his appointment, he was the youngest judge ever appointed to a seat on that court. Bob was dark-haired and charming, and he was doted on by loving parents, but as a child, he was often in trouble, and his father, the judge, would intervene, keeping Bob from any real consequences. But there was one incident that George could not get him out of, and it occurred around 1967 when Bob was 11 or 12 years old. He set a fire in his grandmother's home. After the fire, his family sent him away to the Howe Military Academy in Howe, Indiana. The academy describes itself as a private, college preparatory boarding school, but it's well known in certain circles that Howe is where you send the kids that need straightening out, or it's where you used to send them because the Howe Academy closed their doors in the summer of 2019. After spending a couple of years away from his family at Howe, Bob returned home and enrolled as a freshman at Gross Point North High School. After graduating from North, Bob attended Albion College, a private school in Michigan. Albion is located in the south-central part of the Lower Peninsula, between Jackson and Battle Creek. And while a student at Albion, Bob joined a fraternity, and he graduated in 1980 with a degree in economics and speech communication. After graduation, Bob took a sales job at Michigan First Aid and Safety in Detroit. While he was still in college up in Albion, he began seeing a woman named Priscilla. Bob and Priscilla dated for a couple of years, and they married after he graduated in 1981. The marriage would last less than a year. Bob blamed the divorce on their youth, and once the divorce was finalized, Bob decided that the 9-to-5 job scene was not for him. He wanted to be an entrepreneur. You see, Bob's uncle owned a restaurant, a place called the Wooden Nickel. So Bob and his father, they went in together and opened a second Wooden Nickel in 1983. And in addition to the Wooden Nickel, Bob and his father owned several rental properties. It's thought that George Bashara began purchasing rental properties for Bob to manage before he left for Albion in the mid-70s. It was in 1983 that Bob Bashara met Jane Engelbrecht at a party. He was attracted to her right away, and the pair made a handsome couple. Bob was charming, and she was fun. The two became engaged, and they were married in the spring of 1985. Their marriage would produce two children, a son in 1988 and a daughter in 1992. In the 80s and 90s, the pair were happy, and the young couple was successful. Bob's rental properties were doing well, and Jane's career was taking off, which allowed them to purchase a thirty seven hundred square foot two story, five bedroom, five bath home in Gross Point Park in nineteen eighty nine. This is the home where they would raise their children, and this is the place where Jane Bashara would be violently murdered. Bob and Jane were well liked and active in the community. Bob joined the Gross Point Rotary Club, eventually becoming its president. In addition to working full-time as a senior marketing manager for the energy consulting company Kema Services and caring for their two young children, Jane was involved with the kids, volunteering regularly when they were young, and as they grew, she helped out with the Gross Point South High School Mothers Club. And the Basharas were active in the neighborhood as well. During the holidays, they hosted parties where Bob dressed up as Santa Claus. How would you like to go through your photo albums only to find a childhood image of you sitting on Bob Bashara's lap? Before things started to go south, both personally and financially for the Basharas, they were a well-liked, well-respected family, the type of neighbors you hoped would live nearby. And I imagine that like many Detroiters, the recession of 2007 hit them hard, especially with Bob making his living as an entrepreneur. Well, Bob liked to call himself an entrepreneur, but he was a landlord, a real estate investor. He had properties and he collected rent from them, and that's how he made his living. And remember that Bob's father is the one who got him started. Bob's father purchased the first of the rental properties, possibly right as Bob finished high school. So it's not like Bob Bashara scraped and saved to get his start in the business. When the economic downturn hit at the end of 2007, I suspect that Bob's earnings took a hit. People couldn't pay their rent, and suddenly properties were worth far less than they'd been valued at just a few months earlier. The recession sent the Bashara family into an economic downturn of their own, just as their oldest child was attending college and planning for his future, a future he thought would be bolstered by the loving support of the family, the mother and father he'd grown up with. The Basharas were not alone in their money woes. Many families were hit hard by the recession, but because so much of Bob's income was tied to rental properties and the money generated by them, it's likely that the Basharas struggled. Now, Jane made a very good living at her job. She was well-respected in her field, but it wasn't enough to sustain the lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to. Houses of that size and in that neighborhood are not cheap to heat, cool, clean, or maintain. The Bashara family, like so many others, they had to cut back. And I think that Bob, now in his early 50s and married to a woman in her late 50s, Bob is struggling with all the changes. His energy and his looks are fading. He may have been considering his own mortality. You know, his dad, George Bashara, passed away in 2002 at the age of 67. Bob couldn't help but notice that his two children his son in college, and his daughter in high school, well, they weren't little kids anymore. And I think that Bob realized his life was on the downturn. He was headed for old age and retirement. And I'm going to play armchair psychologist here for a moment. I don't do this very often, but bear with me. I think that Bob Bashara is a narcissist. And rather than facing approaching changes with a level head, he doubled down. He wanted to serve his own needs and please himself, and rather than focus on the good things in his life, his wife, his two children, his beautiful home in a prestigious neighborhood, and his health, well, he made other choices. So the Bashara's marriage has hit a rough spot. In addition to money issues and concerns about his business, Bob is struggling with erectile dysfunction and this led to sexual problems for the couple who in 2008 celebrated their 23rd wedding anniversary. In court documents, Bob claimed that Jane had little interest in sex and while her interest decreased, Bob's interest in the BDSM community was growing. Bob said that Jane was okay with him pursuing sexual activity outside of the marriage. Bob would testify that Jane said, "quote You do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Just don't embarrass me or the family. So in 2007, supposedly with the blessing of his wife, Bob Bashara began exploring online, which led him to attending events where he had sexual contact with multiple women. He also pursued relationships with these women outside of the events. Bob positioned himself as a dominant or a master. His primary interest in the community was women being subservient and submitting themselves to his will. So Bob's wife is this powerful, successful woman. And when it comes to sexual exploration outside of his marriage, Bob only wanted passive women who would listen and obey his commands. And after a year of exploring the BDSM community and engaging with many women outside of his marriage, Bob was fully committed to his new interest. And he constructed a BDSM playground known as a dungeon in the basement of one of his properties. I want to pause here to talk about BDSM, a quick primer, if you will. If your knowledge of BDSM comes from the Fifty Shades books or movies, it's possible you missed some key components. I wanted to get my facts straight, so I turned to Miranda Micronaut, a member of the BDSM community in Kansas. Miranda has been part of the community for more than a decade and was happy to answer my questions and provide some clarity. BDSM stands for bondage, domination, and sadomasochism. These activities and role play may be referred to as a kink or a fetish. Participants in the community, they incorporate BDSM into their lives at varying degrees. When you become part of the community, you may attend events where others, people with more experience role-playing, they will mentor you. And taking time to learn the ropes, if you will, is a sign of respect for yourself and for those you engage with. There are three core tenets of the BDSM relationship, and they are safe, sane, and consensual. If an exchange does not have these three things, then you should not be playing together. Miranda emphasized the importance of participants in a scene setting boundaries prior to play. A conversation about boundaries, that takes place while participants are still dressed and are not under the influence of drugs or alcohol, especially if this is the first time they're playing together. And during this conversation, limits are discussed, such as, you can restrain me, handcuffs are okay, but a mask or a blindfold is not okay you can strike me with a leather strap, but only on the buttocks and thighs. Do not strike me with your hands. During this conversation, the sub is setting guidelines for the master or dominant to work within, and a proper dom or master will listen and will respect their wishes because the submissive is making themselves vulnerable during play. And there's that word again, respect. It is the most important part of a master-slave relationship and safe BDSM play. Now, this pre-play conversation is the time for safe words or guide words to be presented. Some participants use red, green, and yellow for stop, proceed, or slow down. Others might choose a safe word to bring the activity to an end when they've reached their limit. And Miranda also told me about the importance of after-scene activities where the dominant or master cares for, praises, and cuddles their submissive, helping them feel safe and centered when festivities conclude. The post-scene exchange between a master and their sub is vital to the relationship and to the emotional well-being of the submissive. Without open dialogue and precautions, someone with tendencies toward sexual sadism could bring physical, emotional, or psychological harm to submissives in their control. And listeners, I want you to note that the difference between a master or a dominant and a sexual sadist is consent. When play goes beyond what was discussed, or if there is no discussion prior to play, where it's just the dominant deciding what the submissive will take, that crosses a line from BDSM to abuse. As we discuss Bob's movements within the BDSM community and how he positioned himself as a master or a dominant, please keep this information in mind. So let's get back to the dungeon that Bob constructed for his work as a master. Bob's dungeon was in Gross Point Park, and he constructed it in the building that housed the Hard Luck Lounge on Mack Avenue. As soon as work on the dungeon was complete, Bob started taking women from the community to the dungeon. Despite having spent a lot of money to construct the dungeon, and to make sure that it was stocked with his favorite toys and plenty of leather, having women go to the dungeon was not enough for him, so he started bringing them to the Bashara home. After the murder, police asked him why he took women to the house when he had the dungeon, and Bob responded that the bed in his home was far more comfortable and the dungeon did not have access to a shower. You know, I'm thinking that Bob wanted these women to see the luxurious home he lived in. Since being a dungeon master wasn't satisfying his needs, by bringing women to his house, he could experience the added thrill of sneaking around right under the nose of his family and neighbors. And we just talked about how Jane allegedly told Bob that he could do what he needed as long as he didn't embarrass her or the family And here we have Bob bringing an array of women to their home for extramarital activities and sleepovers. Bob would testify that he saw women in the BDSM community suffering abuse at the hands of men. He wanted to show these women what a BDSM relationship should be like. He wanted to help them. Bob claimed that he took women under his wing and he guided them in their relationships and how they should proceed with the dominant. You should know that Bob viewed himself as an expert in the community since he'd been involved for almost three years and he built his own dungeon. I brought this up during my conversation with Miranda, and she tells me that someone with a couple of years in the community is still very inexperienced, and while they can absolutely participate, they should have a mentor and be learning as much as they can. Someone that new to the community is not qualified to mentor or guide people who are new to the scene. I have to wonder if Bob's goal wasn't to participate in the community, but to satisfy his need to control, punish, humiliate, and inflict pain on an inexperienced partner. A partner who doesn't realize that while they are the submissive, they still have a say in the course of the encounter. And since respect and honest communication is a vital part of the BDSM community, you should know that Bob, who saw himself as a shepherd to women new to the scene, Bob wasn't truthful. He told women that he was divorced or that he was widowed. He made no mention of his wife, the woman he still shared a home and a bed with. When women began to figure out that Bob was actually married and living with his wife and teenage daughter, he again lied, saying that he was separated, that he and Jane were together only for the sake of the children, and that they would divorce and he would be a free man when their daughter reached adulthood. And for me, one of the great mysteries of this case is how someone like Bob fooled so many intelligent people into thinking he was a good guy. And speaking of mysteries, if unsolved mysteries are your thing, I suggest you check out my friend Robin Warder and his podcast, The Trail Went Cold. Not only is Robin one of the nicest people in podcasting, he's a fantastic storyteller focused on unsolved mysteries, and he regularly selects cases from Robert Stack's time on that classic true crime show. In his most recent episode, he covers the mysterious 2002 death of Jamie Stickle in Pittsburgh. You can find The Trail Went Cold on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. That's The Trail Went Cold, hosted by Robin Warder. And now, back to the story. If you're wondering how Bob lured women to the dungeon, let's visit some of the lines he used in his online chats and profiles. His username was Master Bob, and on one profile he wrote, I am a true master. Come to me. Also, quote, I am a most complete master who will open to you all this lovely life has to offer. I will bring you to my dungeon and train and open you to all you seek to understand, learn, and know. I am here. Neil. Interestingly, some of the women he was involved with responded to Bob because they said he was nice, that he talked with them. And one of the things we know about Bob going all the way back to his childhood is that he was charming. In 2008, he is dipping in and out of events in the BDSM community, and Bob starts an affair with a woman he met on an adult website, 48-year-old Rachel Gillette. Bob fell in love with Gillette, and if he wasn't truly in love with her, he was in love with the nature of their relationship. The pair would be together for several years. They met on a BDSM website in 2008 and began seeing each other regularly. Gillette said that Bob was more into role play than she was, and as their relationship developed, he talked to her about hosting BDSM parties in the future when the two lived together in their own home. According to court records, early in their relationship, Bob arranged for a woman to pick up Gillette. This woman was the chauffeur while he was in the passenger seat. Once Gillette was in the vehicle, he covered her eyes with a blindfold and the three went to Bashara's home on Middlesex Road in Grosse Point Park. Once there, they engaged in sexual activity, and when the sexual activities were complete, Gillette used Jane's shower and her personal items to bathe with. She then slept in the Bashara's bedroom. Bob allowed her to sleep on the floor while he and the woman who drove them around earlier shared the bed. And this would not be Gillette's last visit to the Bashara home. As the relationship progressed, not only did she sleep in Jane's bed and use her things, there were times that she drove Jane's car, a Mercedes SUV. I assume this happened when Jane was out of town for work. And as his relationship with Gillette continued, Bob told her that the two of them would buy a home in the points. Now, Gillette was not comfortable with the Gross Point community but Bob told her he couldn't live anyplace else, and he reassured her that he had many friends. They would be her friends, and she would come to love the community as he did. So who is this woman, this temptress that Bob wanted to host BDSM parties with, the woman he wanted to share a home and a future with in place of his wife, Jane? Rachel Gillette was originally from the Detroit area. But after growing up in Dearborn and graduating from Fordson High School in 1979, she relocated to Texas, where she was married and later divorced. In the late 90s, she spent six years working as the manager of a Christian bookstore. She left the bookstore for a job at the University of Texas. And when Gillette decided that she wanted to return to Michigan, she sent an application to Wayne State University in Detroit in the summer of 2006. And they hired her. For two years, she was a reliable and dependable employee. But starting in 2008, her performance started to slip. Her boss had a conversation with her about the change. Gillette spoke of family issues and promised that she would do better. In 2010, her work had not improved. She was constantly on the phone and making personal calls during work hours. Remember, Bob, the entrepreneur and dungeon master, has plenty of free time, and he expected her to be available when he needed her. During this time period, Gillette's peers described her as aggressive and disrespectful. Baffled by the change in what was once a fine employee and kind person, Gillette was offered additional training. This sounds like it was basically an intervention so she could keep working at the university but she was not open to the training or to the feedback. It was toward the end of 2011 that Gillette updated her personnel file, changing her emergency contact to Robert Bashara. And listeners, I want to pause here because I have a great deal of sympathy for Rachel Gillette. She believed what Bob Bashara was telling her. She trusted him. And when he said that he loved her and they would have this great life in a fancy home and a fancy neighborhood, She believed him. She was lonely and vulnerable, and Bob was charming and persuasive. Gillette had no way of knowing the dark and horrifying turn her life would take in January of 2012. Rachel Gillette was in love with Bob Bashara, and she thought they had a future together. She believed the promises he made to her. So in 2011, when Bob spoke of wanting a polyamorous relationship, that he wanted a third partner, a woman. Rachel was open to it. She wanted what would make him happy. Bob told her that with two women at home, he wouldn't need to go outside of their relationship for satisfaction. So Gillette went along with the suggestion, and she watched as Bob searched online through BDSM communities for a good match. Eventually, he told her he thought he'd found the right one. And the right one was a woman named Janet Lehman. A 52 year old grandmother who was happy to have finally found someone nice after meeting what she described as hundreds of people on the website alt.com. As the two became acquainted, Boshara told her that he was in the middle of a divorce, but he was still living in the marital home on the advice of his divorce lawyer. At Christmas of 2011, Bob sent a gift to Lehman a $25 gift card to the Olive Garden and a leather cord he wanted her to wear as a bracelet. He told her, quote, you are to wear it on your left wrist and not wear it around your neck until I'm there to put it on myself. Bob asked her about relocating to Michigan to be with him. He told her that his father was a judge and he spoke of the large, luxurious home on Kensington Avenue that he was buying for them. I want to pause here again because, look, all-you-can-eat breadsticks are amazing. But a $25 gift card to Olive Garden for a woman that you're trying to lure into a polyamorous relationship on the other side of the country? Come on. And that house on Kensington Avenue. Yeah, Bashara is in the middle of buying a home for himself and Rachel Gillette in Gross Point Park. In fact, the Kensington Avenue house had a closing date of January 27, 2012. At the end of 2011, Bob has his hands full. He's trying to keep Gillette happy, and he wants to keep his relationship with her a secret. He's still managing his many rental properties. He's staying active in the local BDSM scene, and he's serving as president of the Gross Point Rotary and communicating with Lehman, hoping she'll leave her life in Oregon to come to the Detroit area. Bob Bashara was a busy man. And while she was attracted to Bob, Lehman was torn. She said she had a bad feeling about the relationship, and while Bob was set to fly to Oregon and spend a weekend with her, she put him off for several days. She didn't respond to his messages. The two eventually began talking again, and Bob's trip to visit her was scheduled. Bob told his wife, Jane, that he had a work related trip, and he asked Rachel Gillette to drive him to the airport on January 12th. Bob spent three days with Lehman out in Oregon. And while they were together, he whined and dined her, taking her out for nice meals. He also stopped at a farming supply store during the visit, where he purchased a whip and a length of rope. Later that day, he used the whip on Lehman, and she would later testify that he beat her, quote, half to death with the whip. He left her bruised, battered, and terrified. And while pain and punishment can be part of a BDSM relationship, the way that Lehman described Bashara's actions toward her are outside the realm of safe BDSM play. Lehman testified that the marks inflicted by Bashara that night were visible for months afterwards. She would also testify that Bob forced her into something called breath play, where, without discussing it with her first, he was standing behind her when he placed his hands around her neck, cutting off her airway she told the court that she, quote, saw stars, and she was frightened by the interaction. The scene that Lehman describes flies in the face of the safe play practices Miranda shared with us. Very little about the scene she participated in with Bob Bishara sounds safe, sane, or consensual. Lehman would also testify that Bob asked her if she knew anyone who could, quote, rough someone up for him. When she pressed him for information, he told her that there was a handyman trying to extort him for money. Lehman suggested that Bob call the police and let them handle it. Also, during Bob's time with Lehman, she overheard his side of a conversation during which he said, What the fuck is wrong with you? I want this done and I want it done before I get back. When she asked about the call, he told her he was talking to one of his handymen, property management, remember? Bob the entrepreneur When Bob returned to Detroit his plate was full he had Rachel Gillette and Janet Lehman lined up to move into the house on Kensington with him he'd told the real estate agent that he was divorced but the Basharas were very much still married according to his financial records Bob didn't have the money to pay cash for the house nor had he applied for a loan when his flight landed in Detroit on January 15th 2012 Jane Bashara, his wife, and the mother of his two children, had only 10 days left to live. And listeners, it might feel that we've come a long way, but there is so much further to go. The murder of Jane Bashara will conclude in our next episode on February 1st. Meanwhile, check out my friend Robin at The Trail Went Cold. This series on the murder of Jane Bashara was researched by Haley Gray. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.